Uh, let me show you a picture and see if anybody knows who this guy is. This is a guy that made one of the worst financial decisions in history. His name is Ronald Wayne. He's a retired businessman, and he's done okay. His net worth right now, uh, is according to the Internet, which we all know if it's on the Internet, it's completely true, um, is around fifty dollars to $450,000, his net worth. It's not bad, right? Ronald is a long-time technology connoisseur and was really good with inside of companies, helping them to get the documentation they need to be legal and to be right. And several years ago, he was called to the home of a young man who was a few years younger than him, who had his friend with him, and they wanted to start a company. And he was asked about consulting for them, about giving them some advice I was a little older than them, and he said, yeah, I'll give you that advice. And by the end of the evening, his advice was so valuable, and they thought going forward they needed him so much, they offered him 10% of the company they were starting. One took 45, the other friend took 45, and said, we'll each give 5% of our company to you to give you 10%. So he took the deal, and he began to work for the company. Twelve days later, he rethought his decision. And he called the guys, and he got a meeting, and he just said, guys, this is just isn't for me. And so he sold back his 10% to them for $800. If he would have kept that 10%, today it would be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $260 billion. B. Billion. Because the two guys that he met in a house with were these two guys. Now, if you don't know who those two guys are, that is Steve Wozniak. That is Steve Jobs. This company is Apple. He walked away from Apple after 12 days and gave up his rights to share. In fact, a couple years later, he got paid $1,500 to legally say he would never claim any stock right for Apple in his life. Anybody here ever made a $260 billion mistake? Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe some of you are like, well, uh, if I would have known about Walmart or Amazon back in the day. But that's a big deal, right? To make an investment decision that ends up costing you, not really costing you, but you miss out. Can you imagine how he felt as he saw that stock increase? I want to talk today from the story in Luke chapter 18 that you've already heard about a decision that was worse than his. This man may not have lost $260 billion, but he lost something much more valuable. Chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we read again, a ruler. Now, we know from other places that This young ruler that we have was young and rich. There's some dispute out there about exactly what kind of ruler he was, although the language here seems to suggest some kind of religious leader. Ruler, ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's just be honest. On the outset of the question, that seems like a very reasonable question. Amen? 
I mean, that is the ultimate question of life. Is there something beyond here? And if so, how do I obtain it? Is there life beyond this life? And if so, how do I get it? How do I grab hold of it? How do I find it? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says kind of a pondering question because I think that when that question's asked, I would respond with, well, you know, I, I would do Romans Road or something. Well, we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are included in that. But I have come. Jesus is there. He's the one speaking to set you free. And if you would follow me, everything would be okay. But he doesn't do that immediately. He sets this guy up a little bit and he starts by questioning the question. Verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. Now, this has caused people concern sometimes because they're saying, is Jesus, or you'll, you'll see skeptics say, is Jesus declaring here that he is not God? Because he's saying that only God is good, why are you calling me good? I think exactly the opposite is happening here. What Jesus is saying is the only one that is good, the only one that is right, the only one that is perfect is God. And so if I'm good, I must be God. If I'm perfect, I must be God. To say the things that Jesus said, to live the life he lived, Jesus can't just be a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And to be a good teacher and lie is not to be a good teacher. And so either he is God, he was delusional, or he was flat out lying about it. That's C.S. Lewis' classic conundrum. And here he's saying, why do you call me good if you don't think I'm God? You know the commandments, Jesus says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He, He encapsulizes a portion of the Ten Commandments in their society and in ours. There's even this understanding, even from Um, unbelievers or people that aren't followers of Jesus, that the Ten Commandments are a great moral code, a moral law. And so he says, you know the answer, you know the law, especially if he was a religious leader, some kind of religious ruler, you know what it says. So you know that it says, don't commit adultery. It it tells you to honor your mother and father. It it says, don't lie about anything. And at first face value, some of these commandments seem easy to keep. I mean... Not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing. Most of us would, I hope, be able to give a pretty good testimony to how those haven't been a regular part of our lives. I hope. And yet we know that Jesus in his teaching already in this book and in the extended Gospels that we understand, the four Gospels put together, has taught us that following the Ten Commandments is much more than just outward expression of what the Ten Commandments ask. And so when it says, do not commit adultery, he doesn't say just don't do acts that you're out, not supposed to outside of marriage. He says don't even think about it. When he says don't murder, like, okay, we don't have a problem with that. He says if you get angry with someone in your heart, it is a type of murder that is happening in your life and you have broken the commandment. So Jesus extends an understanding I don't think this religious leader got that because he says one of the boldest answers you could ever imagine when confronted by Jesus, Son of God, great teacher who is God Almighty, and he asked him, have you followed the Ten Commandments? And the guy says, I haven't 
missed a one. I've kept them all from my youth. First of all, that's a bold statement, amen? I think this guy believed it. And he thought, now Jesus is going to say what? Awesome, man, you got it. You're good. You kept them all? Check that off. It's all good. Now, part of me thinks he thinks that. Part of me thinks he's, he's in his mind, has come to understand there's got to be something else. So Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. By the way, in other, this story is told in both Matthew and Mark, and in other versions of this, we get this understanding that Jesus looked at him lovingly and said this. Verse 23, after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Verse 24, Jesus then uses this as a teaching moment. It says, seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, Then who can be saved? And he replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, Jesus, We have left what we had and have followed you. And so he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more than this an eternal life in the age to come. We're starting a new series today and we're calling it Whatever It Takes. And this is the idea behind this series. It actually comes from One line I heard from a preacher years ago, and I don't remember the setting in which I heard it or what was happening when I heard it. I just remember this phrase. It was some convention or some um, training place that I had gone to, some kind of special event, seminar or something, and I was sitting in a crowd of lots of people and there was a pastor on stage and they asked the question that pastors want to know, how do we reach people for Jesus? And they asked the pastor that was sitting on that stage, they said, in all of your years of experience, can I ask you a question? What should we do to reach people in our generation? And the guy had a three-word answer. Whatever it takes. I heard that pastor later in another seminar, and they asked, what should we do to grow in our own faith? And he said a three-word answer. Whatever it takes. There is nothing not worth sacrificing if it draws us and others closer to Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to spend most of our time in Luke 18 and 19, where Jesus confronts people with difficult decisions, difficult choices, difficult questions, and basically says, I need you to surrender to the Lordship that I have in your life and do whatever it takes to follow me and to gain what I have for you. 
And so the first one is this particular story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I just want eternal life. How do I get that? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? He gives him some, these are the commandments. The guy says, I'm good. He goes, all right, just one more thing. And the guy, it says, walks away sad. So do we learn from this particular story? Just a couple of things this morning. First of all, we need to understand the way of salvation. There's this curious uh, moment in this passage when Jesus says about rich men that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll we'll talk a little bit more specifically about the money aspect of that in just a moment. But we need to understand what he's teaching them about salvation in general. Because there are all kinds of people that try to jump through. Maybe you've heard one of these arguments that there was a particular case that they they called the eye of the needle. And that a camel could get through, but a camel could only get through if he could get down on his knees and kind of get pushed through by someone else. He couldn't do it on his own. And I guess that could be an understanding. I don't think that's what's happening here. Because in their mind, the biggest thing in the world they could imagine was a camel. The biggest animal they had ever seen was a camel. And they're still pretty big. Anybody here ever ridden a camel? Uh, some of you. All right. I mean, not like at the house, but like you've been somewhere, right, you know, ridden a camel, right? We went to the Memphis Zoo a few years ago. They had a camel, you know, you had to pay to ride a camel. You can't just hop on a camel. You got to pay to ride. They're, they're big, they're big animals, right? And so in their mind, the biggest image they could think of was, the biggest animal they could think of was a camel. And so it's huge to them, right? Anybody want to guess what the smallest thing they could think of? The eye of a needle, right? It's tiny. And there is absolutely no way that a camel can fit through the eye of a needle. How do I think that's what Jesus is saying is because when they ask then who can get through and he says with man this is really difficult is that what he says he says it is impossible no matter what Tom Cruise's movies have taught you about the word impossible impossible means not able to be done right It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's not challenging. It's impossible. And our need to understand the way of salvation is that if we are counting in any way on us to get it done, it is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. You can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. This rich young ruler could not be good enough. And here's the thing. For the people that were sitting there, they would have been blown away by this because in their understanding, that rich in their world meant blessed. Blessed in their world meant right with God. And if someone was rich... They assumed that they were doing what God had called them to do. And if this was a rich religious ruler, they would have thought there is no one better than him. And if he can't get through, then how are we? 
It'd be similar today, and I know there's a name for someone who's already passed away, but if someone came up to you and said, it's impossible for Billy Graham to get into heaven. And you're like, well, if Billy Graham can get into heaven, what chance do I have? And the point Jesus makes is it's what? Impossible without God. To understand salvation, we need to understand that it is not of us at all. It is a free gift of God. The second thing we see in this passage that's important for us also is that we need to recognize that money is a particularly difficult problem. In fact, the way that Jesus turns this on its head for them is he says not only does him being rich give him a leg up on getting to heaven, him being rich is a detriment. It makes it harder. And I know the first thing that you think is, well, great, because I'm not rich. And this is the time of year that we talk about a lot in this church about that 98% of you in this room at least are part of the top 1% wealthiest people in the world. Just because you don't feel rich doesn't mean you aren't. If you are not worried about where lunch is coming from, you're rich. If you have clothes to choose from, a multitude... I won't ask the size of the closets that you have. If you have it, you're rich. And he says in this passage that what happens when we get stuff is we, the understanding has become less dependent on God. In fact, Tim Keller, who passed away recently, said, The reason that money in particular is so difficult is because it does four things to us. More than four, but he listed these four. First of all, it tempts us to cheat in our lives to get more. It tempts us to to cut corners here or to just smudge a little bit of truth here just to get more because we have to have more. He says also it becomes addicting that if you watch and listen people that have a lot of money, they never have enough money. He was Rockefeller that once asked, how much is enough for you? And he said, just a little bit more. In fact, studies show that the more wealthy you are, the less you give to charity percentage-wise. That seems to be crazy to think about. But here's what I'll tell you. That's true of us that don't have tons of what we think is a lot of money. We give less today percentage-wise to charity and to church than the depression generation gave. It gives us a false sense of security. Not only do we want more always, we do think, well, if something were to happen, I've got this as a backup plan. And if something did go wrong, I've got this as a backup plan. And what he's saying here is that we, when we depend on money, we're not depending on the Lord. And lastly, it makes you proud. Puffs you up. And the vernacular of my grandmother's generation gives you the big head. Because you think it's all because of you. I think of the king that looked out over his kingdom in the Old Testament and said, Look what I've built. 
God gave Nebuchadnezzar a little reality check. And the reason Jesus asked him this question and asked him to do this is because there's a question that's behind the question. And what every one of us in this room have to ask ourselves is the essential question. Here's what I noticed, and I don't know why I noticed this today, this time walking through, and maybe I've noticed it before and I forgot. I'm getting to this. I'm getting to that age. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, not in this passage, but another another passage, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, what did he reply? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Right, and then he says, and the second is likened unto it is to. Love your neighbor as yourself. Most people, when they exegete, when they look at that passage, they say that what he did is he divided the Ten Commandments into the first four being about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? You know the first four commandments, right? No other gods before me, no graven images, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? Okay? You can nod, even if you didn't know that. You can nod, all right? And that's the first four. The second six are about our relationships with each other. Adultery, stealing, murder, right? Coveting. So you've got the first four are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got the second six that are about your treating your neighbor well. Here's what's interesting. When Jesus asked him if he's followed the commandments, which commandments did he ask about? The second six, right? Your neighbor. Here's why I think Jesus asked those is because he knew this guy's problem weren't the second six. They were the first four. And if you don't get the first four right, you don't get any of them right. And that money in this man's life was where he had a God above the Lord. Money was his graven image. Money was that in his life which he held to a higher place than the Lord. And so he waits until he answers from the six and says, I'm good there. And then he says, then let me ask you about where it hurts. Will you give up the thing that you hold in higher esteem than your relationship to the Lord in order to follow me? And the man says, no. Here's the essential question for you and for me. Are you, are we, surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And this passage convicted me this week. Because I got a lot of stuff, man. Just to be honest, if Jesus asked me to give it up, I'm your preacher. I'm supposed to tell you I do it willingly and immediately. But man, my family... My career, my health. What if I'm placing those things above the Lord and the Lord asks not in a punitive punishment way, but he asks as it tells us in the other parts of the story, because he loved this man. He realized he was going to spend eternity separated from God because he loved money more than he loved God. What do I need to do to follow Jesus completely in my life? Whatever it takes. So let me ask you this question. 
What's keeping you from surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus completely in your life? Is it a financial investment? Is it a relationship? Is it a reputation? Is it a lack of security? The greatest stories in the Bible are stories of men and women who gave up everything to follow Him. And Jesus can literally ask that of us because He did the same thing for you and for me. He gave up His place in heaven. He came to this earth. He shed His blood on the cross and gave His life for us. He gave up everything. That's what Philippians chapter 2 says. He who was equal with God did not consider that something to be held onto or grasped, but willingly gave it up in obedience. What could you be asked to give up that you would say no? We need to ask that as individuals, but can I tell you something, church? We need to ask that as a church. What are we holding on to? What are we grasping? What are we taking hold of and saying, no, 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 Lord. You can't mean that. Lord, not that. I don't have anything particular in mind. I've been praying about it since I read this passage this week because it's convicting me. But what are what is it that when we hear the Lord saying, Church, I need you to do this, we go, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Because to say no to the Lord in that moment is to give up your opportunity to impact the nations at the level that He wants us to impact them. To impact our community and to grow ourselves so what's the point of all of this make the smart investment that's what he says at the end right he says when they say well what by the way peter you have given up stuff and jesus compliments you on this but that's a bold statement there what about us jesus we've given up all kinds of stuff for you and jesus says whoever it is Whoever it is that chooses this path of the Lordship of Christ in our life will receive many times more an eternal life in the age to come. You see, the reason that this guy's investment and decision was worse than even Ronald Wayne's with Apple is because he gave up eternity for a moment. Jimmy Elliott is famous for saying, you've heard it many times, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep that which he cannot lose. By the way, I saw an interview recently. Ronald Wayne's now in his late 80s. He's still alive. And he's been asked, as you can imagine, multiple times as he regrets it. And he says no, as you're going to say. Right? But somebody asked him, well, why don't you regret it? And he said, because they said you could have been... At that rate, he would be the wealthiest man alive. He said, well, here's the thing. He said, if I'd kept it, I wouldn't be the wealthiest man alive. I'd be the wealthiest man in the cemetery. He said, because it would have killed me. And the reality is, death is coming for all of us. And where we invest now will have a major importance in the years of eternity. Holidays are coming up. It's getting that time of year. We we made we were talking through Thanksgiving plans this week. It's not that far off, right? It's three weeks from Thursday is Thanksgiving. 
As we were talking through holiday plans, I was thinking about holidays. And one of the things that happens in our family sometimes is that life slows down at some point over the holidays. Usually not till like noon on December 25th, right? Or the morning of December 26th in that small stretch from when you are still in the afterglow of Christmas before you got to get the house right for New Year's. One of the things that happens in our house sometimes during that time is we either do a puzzle or we play board games. And my sons have a particularly favorite board game to play, and it is the game that takes the absolute longest in the world to play. Anybody want to guess what it is? Monopoly, right? Monopoly. I remember we went on a vacation to the beach one year, and it was one of those weeks that was a little rainy, and we they had a Monopoly set in the house that my boys and my father-in-law played. But the problem was they got the Monopoly set out. It was missing a couple of the tokens, which was okay, just three of them. It was missing the dice. So we found, and we couldn't find any in the whole place, and so instead of going to the store and paying 35 cents for a pair of dice, we found an app on the phone to roll, Right? And they played that for four days. And at some point in any Monopoly game in our house, someone is going to get mad. Can I get an amen in the house? Someone is going to get overly excited and perchance tell other people how excited they are about the destruction they are bringing on their family at that moment. I know know that's not your family, but it's mine. And eventually, the only way that game ends is when everyone goes bankrupt except one player who is now the most disliked person in the house for the rest of the holidays. And there comes that moment when the game is over that you have that anticlimactic place of taken now they've they've split the boards now but y'all know remember when you just fold over had a full board fold the board and what do you do with all the stuff you put it back in the box you put the lid on and it goes away and all of that that happened meant nothing at some point they're going to put all your stuff in a box including you. Nice thought before lunch, right? But it's true. And all that will matter then is whether you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the way that you have been used by Him. My prayer is that we as individuals and that we as a church will do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you in this moment that you are a gracious and a loving God who knows what's best for us even when we don't know what's best for us. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment you'll bring to mind things that we need to get rid of that are preventing us from following you. Whether it's something that we're trying to hold on to, that's good, Lord. That's, that's good, but it, it doesn't deserve the place of God in our lives. Or whether they're destructive habits that are keeping us from following you. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would help us just to know what 
It means to follow you whatever it takes. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, you'll help us to see what it means to follow you whatever it takes and that we will be willing to just say yes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.